，天上太阳红红彤彤啊，心中的太阳是毛泽东啊，他领导我们的解放儿，人民发现党家做主人。Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. I hope you're doing well. Have you been taking care of yourself? I hope you've been having a balanced schedule. I hope you're giving yourself permission. To take it one step at a time. I hope you've been finding、uh, time to just sit and do nothing. I think it's really nice to just do nothing, just be alone with your thoughts. That is a precious experience that we are increasingly deprived of. I think deliberately. I have been.、Uh, I've been on a, a bit of a. I was singing the、uh, the Mao Zedong song just now, partly because. I'm on a several days kick of Hunan cuisine. I found some really nice places all around Tokyo, and I somehow managed to find one、uh, everywhere that I go. So that it's been several days since I've not had、uh, the the old chairman's home cuisine for lunch. No matter what kind of business brings me to what different part of Tokyo, if you get a chance to visit a Hunanese. Restaurant in your area, I would recommend. I mean, the obvious standard would be slow roasted pig feet, or chicken, or beef, whatever you like, mixed together with a standard Hunanese medley of vegetables, including like coriander leaf and red pepper, green. Chili, right? There's a very spicy kind of green chili that's in that.、Uh, the preserved egg that is black, right? Chopped up fine, is is in better versions of that, and、uh, it's mixed together. It's put on top of rice in a wooden bowl. It's called mutong fan. So wooden bowl, wooden barrel, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that character means barrel in Japanese, at least. Uh, it's not really a barrel; it's more of a bowl. But anyway,、uh, it, that goes on top of rice, and then that's mixed together with the rice. And you, the lucky diner, you get to spoon that into your bowl, and then eat that with a spoon. I think would be preferred, maybe over chopsticks. Any time that you ha- are mixing rice with something that's a little bit soupy, like ri- like curry rice, for example, curry over rice. Uh, the spoon is going to be preferred. You might have all kinds of pride in your chopstick abilities. I don't know, but、uh, no, this the spoon is where it's at in this case.、Uh, Hunan cuisine has the flavor combination known as mala, or or maybe it's a combination of drugs and herbs and medicines. Right? It does certain things to your body. In fact, you have your chili pepper. Which remember that was actually genetically engineered by scientists in ancient Mesoamerica, very carefully、uh, blended different varietals to create the pepper. The pepper was created there. So actually, before the age of European exploration and conquest, 
Unfortunately, we have to imagine a Chinese cuisine without the pepper, interestingly enough. But uh, they've made very good use of the pepper in places like Sichuan. So, you know, you might know Sichuanese cuisine or cuisine from Sichuan province. And that is famous as well for this mala flavor. And it is chili pepper plus a spice that is an endemic and ancient in East Asia, uh, which is hua jiao. And um, that is a pepper. It's a stinging, numbing pepper, the numbing pepper. It actually has it has a flavor, which is interesting. It's like a little citrus. It's like a micro citrus, micro orange, micro lemon there. And the rind of this little micro lemon has a drug in it that numbs your taste buds to some degree in some ways. And that actually causes hallucinations. It's a, it's a it's a culinary hallucinogen because it creates like a phantom limb syndrome on your tongue and it causes you to perceive flavors that actually are not there if you were to analyze the molecules, the flavor particles that are actually there versus what you taste. So there is a traditional combination of the red chili pepper plus huajiao. And there's in Japan, there is a version of that called Sancho. It's known as Sancho, written with the character from Mountain. And in Japan, it's usually eaten green. It's not dried out, right? The Chinese version you'll find dried. It'll just be a brown color and, and maybe cracked like a peppercorn, but put on your, on your, uh, in your dish together with the chili oil, usually, and also chilies. So just as an aside, the Japanese version is eaten a little bit green still, and it has a little bit more of the flavor of that plant in it, and it's really nice and really interesting. You can get it powdered. I had a friend who kept a, it powdered. He had a supplier of it, and he always had it in his shirt pocket, and he would put it on anything. He would put it on fucking ice cream, whatever. It was a, a, a training regime for him, he said. He liked to always use it because it would actually heighten his culinary senses and his palate by uh, forcing his tongue to search harder for the flavors. So, uh, th but that's your mala flavor, right? That's in Sichuan cuisine as well. Hunan cuisine has that plus a lot of mushrooms, Different kinds of mushrooms uh, and other edible fungi are, make appearances, as well as a lot of really fragrant herbs. A lot of different fragrant herbs are going to be there. Uh, pickled vegetables of different kinds that are, are native to Hunan, right? So delicious stuff. Check it out if you get a chance. And if you really want to honor the late, great Chairman Mao you can ask for Mao Jushi Hong Shao Rou. That's Chairman Mao's favorite uh, red braised uh, pork belly. If you have a little calories to spare on your calorie budget there, I mean, you got to try that. On the other hand, though, you may be better ask for Mao Zhu Hong Shao Rou. That's just Mr. Mao instead of Chairman Mao. That's what they say on all the menus uh, around here outside China, certainly. 
and maybe even inside China. I don't know. You know, if uh, around here, if you again, also, if you went into a Chinese restaurant and you were like singing that song, for example, people would clock you quite justifiably as maybe some kind of a cop. Uh, so I wouldn't recommend doing that. Uh, so chill out there, but check out uh, Hunan Cuisine. I'll get back to my, my fish diet one of these days, I promise. It's just that it's cold right now. It's quite on the cold side for Tokyo anyway, and it's easy to get tempted by any hot food. I have to express quite a lot of gratitude to many listeners who have sent prayers and support in uh, just sort of a rough patch in uh, professionally, I guess. And uh, I've, I've explained, I think people who have been listening to the show will know what I'm talking about, but let me just say that the ink is now kind of dry and that situation has really been resolved quite ideally. So thank you so much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I will try to pay it forward by uh, supporting as many people as I can who, with uh, even worse problems, a lot worse problems. There's a lot of trouble out there, and you and I know that the way to really get over it is to organize for revolutionary change in relations of production. And I have a lot of new thoughts percolating on how that has been done and how that can be done in the future. Uh, but first, let's get through uh, the last of this Ivan Morris series here. Uh, I want to cover his death, right? And before, uh, maybe before I cover his death, let me just remind you why I'm so interested in this guy. Because he, let me just get back into his big uh, book, published 1975, the year before he dies. And it's all about kind of Mishima, right? who he, he had been a fairly close uh, professional contact, I guess. I mean, he translated loads of Mishima's books, and he was undoubtedly Mishima's favorite translator uh, that he couldn't get all the time, and he would have big fights with other people who were translating his books. Um, although, personally, they, they hung out as well. They would have breakfast after Mishima's morning training sessions with his little militia, right, in a hotel. I, th- I want to remind you, right? He's talking in this book about uh, Minamoto no Yoshitsune, who was a hero of the Genji Heike Wars that kind of end the Heian period, right, in Japan. About 1200, just speaking roughly. And, you know, the legends about him are that, well, so it seems real that Yoshitsune and his older brother Yoritomo had a falling out. And they probably were just really rivals for authority in the aftermath of this overthrow of the Heike, right? And the Genji have now founded the first of the medieval shogunates. It's the first shogun government of the medieval kind. And Yoritomo ends up being the leader, but he purges basically Yoshitsune. And then through the Middle Ages, all these legends about Yoshitsune as a cultured esthete, as a beautiful uh, man who was, you know, a dashing debonair boy and, uh, you know, object of uh, love from uh, monks. And he writes poetry and he gets all the women and, right, and he, and he flees around the countryside. 
He's, he's not quite a Robin Hood figure. He doesn't steal from the rich and give to the poor or anything. But he flees around the countryside, uh, you know, wronged. He was, he was in the right, and he was innocent of any suspicions that Yoritomo might have had. And this character, uh, there's a third character that's inflated to give an explanation for why they have a falling out. And basically, you know, tragically, on both sides, there's, there, there's a need to probably preserve an idea that Yoritomo, the actual shogun, didn't mean to make the mistake. It wasn't really his fault. You know, you can't have that have him as quite a bad guy in the story. Um, so yeah, Ivan Morris is writing about the role of this. In, in a way, this is the central chapter of the nobility of failure. And it's the one, he's, Yoshitsune is the, the figure who most explains Mishima and his death. And, you know, Morris is, at least, you know, the this book, he seems really broken up about it. And Nobuko, his second Japanese wife, says that he was broken up about it what happened with uh, Mishima. So there's a sense that he didn't know about it. Um, And whether that's true or not, the nobility of failure is explicitly written around this question of like what happened with Mishima. And the answer is, well, the Japanese have this love of hero, heroes who lose. And so therefore Mishima just needed to lose. And that is what created some irresistible death drive in him, and he just had to do this spectacular suicide that he did. Nevertheless, though, there is a revealing moment toward the end of the Yoshitsune chapter which suggests that Ivan Morris knows all about very different reasons why events like a spectacular suicide or a spectacular terrorist attack might be, say staged or encouraged by central authority figures. After the Tairas, that's the Heike, right, had been destroyed, Yoshitsune was no longer needed for his military talents, but acquired a new usefulness by becoming a fugitive and official enemy of the court. The great manhunt provided Yoritomo with an ideal pretext to extend his control over large parts of Japan beyond the eastern provinces. That's where he's kind of from. By representing Yoshitsune as a dangerous rebel whose prompt capture was essential for restoring order in the country, the lord of Kamakura forced the court to agree to a national levy in the form of a rice tax, which ostensibly was to pay for the campaign. This is not the first rice tax in Japan. Come on, what are you talking about? Um, I don't know of anyone who advances this explanation at all. He also imposed a system of appointing Minamoto constables and stewards to represent the authority of Kamakura in different regions and to supervise the great manorial estates that produce the main wealth of the country. Well, of course. I mean, that's not... uh, Of course you're going to put your guys in that hierarchy there that, that has existed, though, since the Heian period. It was long ago that the kind of centralized state that is redistributing property kind of ceased to do so, and large landholders and a big landlord class, right, came into being again. So uh, this is a wild interpretation, and and the question arises, where does he get that, you know, and what kind of logic is this, right? Um, Well, let's keep reading. These measures mark the real beginning of feudalization, 
bullshit. Uh, no, it was started long before. Um, the prolonged search for his brother also allowed Yoritomo to find out who were his real friends at court, in the temples, and elsewhere. Members of the nobility who had supported Yoshitsune were dismissed from their posts and sometimes banished, and the imperial government in the capital was reorganized on lines favorable to Kamakura. All this was part of what Yoritomo himself rather grandiloquently described as the beginning of the country, Tenka no Soso. Um, sure, more literally, the creation of the realm. Tenka is, you know, Tianxia, the all under heaven, uh, which in China means the whole world, the whole known world. And in Japan, that is just kind of aped. Right. The, the whole notion of what it is to be a country is sort of borrowed from China. And so they use words like all under heaven, even though they know that we're only talking about this one little archipelago. So complicated. But yeah, OK. Tank on so so. In other words, a new order for Japan. The hero's final service was to take refuge with the northern Fujiwaras and thus give Yoritomo the pretext he needed for eliminating his last potential opponents and for incorporating the vast Oshu territories, that's Mutsu, uh, Mutsu province in the northeast, right, which is very far from the capital, and never under very strong central control. I, I don't think, especially not in the medieval period, I'm not, this is, this is like, I don't know, Ivan Morris is, this, this reads, I, my reading here is this is his personal, very psychological reading of that, you know, another thing about this first generation of post-war American Anglophone Japanologists is that they were plagiarizing Japanese scholars left and right. They were probably be just being fed was probably the way that they would have thought of it, being fed information to publish under their own names, which was politically expedient and so on. And when one of them comes out with something as idiosyncratic and weird and kind of wrong as this, then you know that it comes straight from the brain of Ivan Morris. And what kind of a brain does it reveal but a gladio brain? This is a brain of a man who knows what gladio is, and he knows the strategy of tension. This is a reference to the strategy of tension, and he's projecting it all the way back onto 13th century Japan just wild. So, you know, what does that suggest about what uh, Mishima might have been in reality? That's my big thesis for this series, and I just want to return to it right now. You know, you, one of the great books that's been written about him recently calls him Aesthetic Terrorist. That's the uh, second title, the su subtitle of it. Well, I would like to suggest, uh, what about Aesthetic Gladio? What if he's not just, as is quite, seems quite, quite likely, when you think about the kind of circles he's in, the kinds of things he's allowed to do, you know, from the beginning, from the beginning, um, what about him as part of, uh, you know, and you, and you ask the Kui Bono question, as you always should. You should ask that about a lot of things that are happening now. But what was this shield society, if not a very public and... You know, it's almost like they decided to do P2 Lodge or do any of the, any of the many small-time actual far-right death squad stay-behind network organizations 
out in the countryside that were secretly burying weapons in church basements and uh, under hillsides and things. Or the police gangs that are just a part of nearly every local American community. You know, there's a, and they traffic human beings and drugs and guns all the time. And if something violent needs to happen in the community, then they'll take care of that too on the behest of the ruling class. Do that. Let's, you know, you feel like somebody said, let's do that, but let's try to like publicize it. What if we publicize that this is happening? And it's, it's just some guy, it's just some guy doing it on his own say-so for some reason. And, uh, you know, that's just a thing that happens, right? Guys with a lot of money and time on their hands will just get together a, a right-wing uh, strike squad for the hell of it. And then just spectacularly commit suicide. And, um, and what does it actually do? On the one hand, it will make you want to poo-poo the idea of anyone doing anything similar or somebody that's really up to some sinister things, you might be inclined to look the other way. Oh, that's just somebody like Mishima. That, that turned out to be nothing. So this is obviously nothing too. Must just be another weird pro-wrestling spectacle that happened for some reason. And then on the other hand, it also shitcoats any kind of political action like this. Anyone doing that will be uh, under a lot of suspicion, whether on the right or on the left. You've seen already how Ivan Morris was always at pains to equate the far right and the far left. And his view of things is basically radical centrist. And so it would be his influence where his first Japanese wife, Ayako, you'll recall, said basically bad things happen in the world when people believe in something too much. Uh, and so in this Cold War tightrope balancing act we want to just play the far right against the far left and just make sure that neither side gets the upper hand and maybe we let them get a little bit of power maybe we let them cause a little bit of trouble because it gives us a pretext to go and clamp down and this will become this gladio brain that we see that Ivan Morris has will become even more interesting in the light of the details of his death and the book by his, the book all about him. There's a book all about him by his Italian uh, Bolognese Marquess near wife. She almost married him in uh, the following way. So from Monica Brau, I'm drawing 1975, he was apparently in some other relationship with a woman that his mother, who you'll recall is very, very domineering and kind of in control of a lot of his, of his life. So she couldn't stand whatever girlfriend that he had. Monica Brow has spared that person from being identified in her book, although it would be interesting to know exactly who that might have been and what the deal is there. But I can understand because one of the things that Edita was really worried about is that this woman, apparently her brother had committed suicide. And she saw this woman as also being kind of a depressive. And, you know, she's got her hooks on you. She's got her noose around your neck. You have to get out of this. She really, I mean, she does this, right? We know this already. His mysterious South African wife uh, was this, she did this with that situation as well well so then uh oh and she also had two she had two children 
as well. Ivan also hates children, but the woman had two children. Um, okay, so, well, and Ivan also, uh, there was a woman that he was seeing when he cheated on her to see Ayako for the first time. He also had children. He has a thing for uh, the MILFs, I guess, seducing the older women. Um, did I say this before? This is a problem with doing a long, drawn-out series. I forget what I've said and what I haven't. There's an expression in Japanese, anegoha, which means, uh, you know, team big sister or something. It means the, the type of guy who likes to a big sister figure. So that could be our boy Ivan here, I think. Uh, but she, so he breaks that off. And then in, by uh, 1976, early 1976, uh, he is engaged to this Marquess. Annalita Marsili uh, is her name, M-A-R-S-I-G-L-I, Annalita. She literally has a palazzo in the middle of Bologna. Her family, her illust- one of her illustrious ancestors wrote encyclopedias. He was an explorer. He m- fought against the Turks. He marked the borders of the Habsburg Empire and all of this. Uh, very, very illustrious family. And she had been a student at Barnard College, which is a women's college to this day near Columbia University. You know, there used to be paired women's college plus the there was the women's college for each of the Ivy League schools because the Ivy League was only fully integrated gender-wise in like the 1970s. And so up to that point, you had, uh, you know, the preferred women's colleges, maybe multiple ones around each Ivy League school, and the boys from those schools would go to party with the girls from the colleges and so on. Ivan also uh, seems to have been uh, fucking students fairly often, uh, at least when he during the times when he was divorced. Sometimes when his mother was staying with him, there are accounts that survive of his mother Adita enjoying uh, breakfast table banter with his hookup of the night before on several occasions. So whatever the circumstances of their meeting, it's at least true that they met while Ivan was a professor at Columbia and Annalita was a student at Barnard nearby. You know, and Adita is just over the moon about about her. We have quotes here from letters, right? Uh, she, she's got a palacio in, in Spanish, right? In Bologna that Ivan's going to share. She's beautiful, good, and a wonderful cook. They're getting married here in New York in June and coming to nail in early July. Edita describes Annalita as a person who, quote, had all the sorrow a human being can have, unquote. Her mother shot her, had shot her father out of jealousy so that she lost both parents. The dramatic event was not hearsay in an autobiographical account in diary form published in a reputable Italian publisher called La, La Marchesa e i Dimoni. So the, Mar, the Marquis and the Demons describes the case of Annalita's mother, Maria Luisa Marsili. She was then admitted to a mental hospital after the murder, apparently. She does not deny that she shot her husband, but explains it with uh, despair that he had deceived her. 
Therefore, she had attempted suicide no less than four times. But her shooting her husband was entirely an accident. She could hit the spot 50 meters away, so why would she have missed and only hit him in the neck, she argued with the doctor. After three years, she managed to be discharged and released, whereupon, according to her own account, she boarded a private plane and flew away. Hmm, interesting person. Uh, kind of wild that Edita would just, you know, it, it tells you again, Edita, she's supposed to be a leftist, and she's such a shit leftist. But I nevertheless can, I search in vain for any sign of malice or any sign that she's some kind of willing, deliberate agent either. It just, she seems like a bumbling bourgeois liberal uh, who doesn't, I mean, yeah, is really being used, maybe. You know, one of the things that she's crowing to her friends about in light of this potential marriage now is that finally Ivan will be able to focus on his Amnesty International work, which he never quite has the stamina to do. And so, and I feel like that kind of shows you that that was set up for him by her, maybe. Uh, it's It's incoherent. It's incongruous with other aspects of his character and his essentially conservative nature to be such a bleeding heart about the political prisoners of the world uh, unless he knew that this was a tool to mostly use to go after political prisoners right-wing political prisoners in Soviet and other uh, countries that are against the Anglo-American sphere. So she, you know, the earlier woman from 1975, her brother committed suicide, so she's a depressive, and Alita's has all of this in her family tree, but no, she's great, she's going to be fine, she's a beautiful, she's life itself, the divine Analita is coming, she says, and what's the difference between the two, if not aristocratic class position? Just wild. Yeah. So she had uh, she had been married to, according to Edita, a nasty, quote unquote, American who had abandoned her and her son. The truth was that her husband was a military doctor at the U.S. naval base Yokosuka in Japan. Ping bong. So Yokosuka. Whoa. Who is this guy? I would love to look deeper into that and find out. I, I can't find, I don't have his name in anything that I have. Uh, it's a task for another time. You know I'd love to learn more about him. What were his projects? What were his research interests? Anything about, you know, MKUltra, obviously. Uh, Yokosuka is the base where Lee Harvey Oswald probably joined the CIA. It is a place where they were working on the U-2 spy planes. They trained various members of the Yakuza to do all kinds of political sabotage and skullduggery and etc., etc. Gee. Anyway, uh, according to Adita, Analita had managed so well because she had a living heart that has not been crippled or twisted. You just, <laughs> so Adita, you know, just like, oh, the heart must be pure and remain true through all the suffering and the injustice. And that's all that matters. Um, she was happy, laughing, and singing, and loving Ivan, 
Quote, this is the best thing that has happened in years to the Morris family, exclamation point, unquote. A few weeks later, Edita sent a message to Gertrude Goodland, um, that's her publisher, right, with plans for a joint stay at Nail. Ivan and, quote, the divine Annalita were to arrive on July 6th. The wedding in New York was expected to have taken place already. But we see in the archive signs that perhaps this is not uh, fait accompli at all. And she keeps writing to, she writes to Annalita, begging her, the, if you do one thing, to uh, give me the, the greatest gift I can get in my old days. Marry Ivan now. Never postpone anything. Anything can happen. Time does not stand still. Feelings change if you let them. She is... Then writing also to Ivan uh, in May as well of 76, one gets the impression that everything is not so harmonious between him and his intended. Edita has been upset by a phone call from him. He had apparently talked about postponing the wedding until the fall. Apparently, Ivan is not getting along with her son, and that's one part of the problem. That's our MILF-loving, kid-hating Ivan. I don't know... uh, it's not a great combination, is it? What I really know, quote, this is uh, Adita, is that you have to grab your opportunities with both hands without hesitation. I have done that in various situations in my long and varied and daring life. It worked. When I hesitated, it never worked, unquote. Uh, at the beginning of July, Ivan is in Bologna instead of New York. The wedding has not taken place. On July 5th, he is found dead in a hotel room. The completely unexpected death was framed by a series of question marks that led to many theories and speculations. Friends who met him jogging in New York just before departure testified that he seemed healthy and strong. The cause of death was alternately given as heart attack and cancer. The death certificate was said to be issued by Annalita's brother, who presumably was a doctor... Hmm? <laughs> no such certificate exists either in Ira and Adita Morris's archives or in his own, I guess in, in Ivan's own, not the brother's own, surely. Uh, the body was cremated and the ashes sent to France. It was surprising that he had stayed in a hotel in Bologna, not in the famous palace of the Marsili family. Previous travel companions spoke of how notoriously demanding the sleepless Ivan was. Hotel rooms were generally not accepted. There were even rumors of a mushroom dinner with a famous mushroom specialist the night before the death. So that brings to mind the hippie network that Nobuko is connected to. What about the Nick Albury scene, which I discussed in my previous episode, and which, of course, Nobuko connects to Mishima, basically by combining factors of Nick Albury and factors of Mishima and their respective, one is a hippie commune and one is a private militia, but she is equating the two by combining them together uh, and talking about them very much in ways that point out to you, like she wants to show you, like these these two are actually very similar. Ivan's political writings very often are pointing out how far right and far left are very similar. They're two snakes to, that must be charmed. They're two bulls that must be 
skillfully dodged and they can be set against each other in such a way that the radical centrist liberal post-war social democracy can go on. And he's the, the cynical operative who is able to do this bullfighting. But among the figures discussed last time, Ubi Dwyer would be one who was a big acid Johnny Appleseed of, of LSD down in Australia. And the cults that he helped to found together with like Paul Pavlovsky, the Church of Aphrodite and so on, which I'll remind you had its sister organizations in the U.S., and for them, LSD and free sex, free sex, uh, this is what uh, Moon Sanmyong does not like, but they do. And it's their, their sacrament, it, which they never, nevertheless phrase in this weird right-wing way of like stability. This is the things pleasing to gods and men and all great civilizations are founded upon serving the gods. And, and I actually read, I don't really have anything to quote from it this time, I don't think, but I read one more memoir, which I got a hold of, Drop Out, with an exclamation point, by Robin Farquharson. Robin Farquharson was a mathematician. He was a kind of savant, but who had bipolar disorder, and so he had to, he kind of had to drop out, at least of his academic job, but he was writing books about voter choice theory, Basically, how can we game democracy? How can we produce like pseudo-democracies where voters do what we want? And he outlines some genuinely new theorems that were taken up later by different people and made more famous than, than him. But he was part of this Nick Albury scene as a kind of elder member of it. And he was actually homeless for different parts. And he also was doing this supposedly, uh, based on uh, Timothy Leary, just hearing Timothy Leary t say, tune in, turn on, drop out. And he actually did it. And he writes a memoir kind of while he's doing this, right, living this kind of uh, unhoused existence, but still with money in the bank, still with quite a, a network, still with quite a lot of friends that he can call on and so on. So there's that aspect of it. But he, you know, he talks about things like group hypnosis, mass, mass hypnosis, and uh, other things that sort of hint at what he might have, the ideas he might have been exposed to in his professional life, whether or not his professional life really did end when he took up this uh, unhoused existence. He displays a tremendous interest in coordinates and global positioning and numbers and identifying exactly where he was, timestamps, geo uh, tags, right? He geo tags nearly all of the entries in this little kind of diaristic uh, memoir. So you could identify a kind of Pynchon-esque consciousness there. That sort of he knows that the internet is coming. Oh, and he was active in the Bit Network as well, this Bit Network, which was a proto-social network that was just happening IRL. And there were magazines and telephone numbers to call hotlines that kept people in touch and so on, rather than the internet yet. But it was 
very much demoing and refining the social tech that would be used to create social media. He was he was so much a part of that that after he died, they did a whole tribute issue of Bithead or whatever it was. I forget. Um, I think it was Bithead is the name of the magazine of that movement. He speaks of many of the things that he does and, and of his bipolar condition as well in terms of spirit possession. He talks about receiving instructions. I received an instruction to do this or that. And when I disobey the instructions, I know that, you know, it's, it's not good for me and so on. Uh, although toward the end of the book, he depicts himself having a philosophical conversation with a Hare Krishna or somebody, and they come to the idea that there is only there are only two. You have to serve either uh, Prince Lucifer or uh, the the voice that was giving me my instructions, one or the other. And uh, I had chosen long ago. Um, you know, somebody told me, "Oh, you should you would make you would do much better serving Prince Lucifer." And I replied that I had already tried that and I couldn't do it anymore, and that's why I'm on the path that I'm on today. So that's what he says about what he's doing. Robin Farku Harson, the coup with a Q-U. Uh, he's South African, he, he as well. He was involved in like the Glastonbury Free Festival, these ideas of things that don't cost money. You know, he has these little one-liners that he clearly thought up in his hours of solitude, which serve as epigraphs or postscripts to the chapters. And one of these was like, whenever someone gives me money, I always decline at first and say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. He has philosophical points about sort of like, one thing that you learn about the dropout life is that every problem ultimately gets solved somehow. You, you just, people do solve problems and you don't have to worry. So many things that you worry about in the square life you worry about that because you've never fallen that far, so to speak, or you've never had to improvise that particular thing before. You know, you've never gotten that close to the guardrails of class society. And this is something that we can really fuck with, I think, in the kingless generation, right? This is exactly what a peasant in the grain state would feel before ultimately finally really seeing, oh, the empire is collapsing, isn't it? I really can, I really must go live in the mountains and learn how to do hunter-gatherer living and learn how to be a pastoralist, learn how to be a subsistence farmer, learn how to dig a well. But then once you do it, you realize, oh, I could have done that. I wish I had done that sooner. But when you're still very much within the empire, within Babylon, you've never gotten that close to that particular guardrail or that particular fence, which they, they swear, they tell you, is electrified. And that's why you feel, you recoil with horror at the thought of whatever, running out of money, for example, right? You run out of money. Uh, many, many people, that is their greatest terror in life. But maybe that's only because they've never tried it. And it's instructive to actually maybe try it. And then, of course, the the real Garden of Eden that's on the other side of that. If, ideally, you experience human interactions that are not mediated by the value form. They're not mediated by currency and a marketplace. This kind of impulse to jump, take a great leap out of everyday life 
is what unites uh, great saints and sages and radical idealists of all stripes in various times and places, right? And of course, there's something we can really value there. I can remember at being young and, and really being kind of into that uh, kind of way of thinking. In, in college, my friends and I used to try things like this. We had a game that we would play called Stuck Unstuck, where we would try to get a thing stuck in some kind of way. You know, we, maybe we were kicking around a soccer ball or something, and it got roofed. It got stuck on a roof. But then that created this whole new adventure where we had to find a way to get onto the roof and get the soccer ball down. If you get stuck in the city, you miss the last train, you have some limitations where you can go and where you can't go, you've just created a new thing for yourself to do. Uh, it's just a new task. Uh, nothing is ever, uh, nothing that gets stuck can ever be permanently stuck. There's always a way to get it unstuck, was, was my juvenile hypothesis that I was testing with this game. Obviously, you know, this is a very idealistic, a uh, game that only someone with a certain amount of security, well, but no, you know, uh, you could play it if you were living as a hunter-gatherer, for example, uh, somebody without, outside of the state, outside of things like money, outside of things like capitalism, uh, yes, then you could play this game, and it would be a lot of fun, and it wouldn't seem callous, privileged, that's, yeah. And then the other thing about Robin Farquharson is that he's gay at a time when it's maybe almost illegal to be gay. So you can, right, it's, that was all right. That was, that's one little addendum to the Shield Society of Notting Hill episode last time, of course. That's a reference to the Shield Society is Mishima's little private army. And Notting Hill is the place in London where a lot of this squatter, dropout, uh, free festival type scene was gathering, right? So Robin Farquharson was part of that. He, yeah, I mean, he participated supposedly in anti-apartheid activities. He was an anti-apartheid activist, uh, although nothing he says quite leaves out the possibility that he was an informant, actually. You and I know that you always need to keep an eye out for that possibility, and there's nothing that dispels any uh, any suspicions of that in his case. On the contrary, he refers to himself as having a checkered history of activism in some kind of way or being under suspicions of various kinds. And he'll name drop famous anti-apartheid activists who clearly are the real deal, but he never depicts himself interacting with them. It's weird. Uh, he was apparently murdered in, in an arson kind of thing, or, or at least it was manslaughter. It led to manslaughter charges. Somebody set fire to a building where he was sleeping. So that scene was soaked in LSD, is what I'm trying to say. And so, what, you know, Ivan, what is this about mushrooms? I don't know what Monica Bra is drawing on here. But she did speak directly with multiple people in the kind of family tree that are left around, right? So the really wild thing then about this is that somehow before this happened, Analita got the right to inherit all of Ivan's property. Because so they weren't married, but he, a new will had been drawn up where she got the castle. She got, or like his share in the castle. 
anyway. And somehow the courts in Italy enforcing the law as like you have ju different jurisdictions, French law, Italian law, and so on. They found in her favor and she, her family anyway, someone that she sold it to. She sold it to a relative who still owns that castle and it is rotting behind rusty gates to this day. And the one relative of Edita's who she wanted to inherit the castle has a picture of the castle when it was still in good repair and the hanging key to the front gate that he had and expected to be able to use when he uh, took possession of it but never could. Uh, Monica Bra has talked to him, right? You know, she went all over the place and talked to a lot of the people in this whole saga. She went to Dallas, Texas, where Cyrus Karuga, the Kenyan uh, airlift beneficiary that Edita and Ira Morris kind of adopted, right? He's kind of a parallel figure to Barack Obama, part of that same program. His daughter is living in Dallas, Texas, and Monica Bra went there. Also living in Dallas, Texas, Annalita Marsili. What is it about Dallas, Texas? She was in many ways kind of more at home in America, perhaps, than in Italy. Apparently, she ended up in Dallas, Texas, and her son still lives there and refused to talk to Monica Bra. So... He just said that he had no good memories of Adita or the Morrises. So I would not be able to say anything that you would want to have in your book. And that's that. So what happened? What happened? There was a very bitter inheritance dispute, of course, that ensued. And so, of course, that plus the rather strange death has led to a lot of suspicions uh, of Annalita in Adita's circle of friends. Had Ivan traveled to Bologna to break up? Was he despondent and depressed? There are friends who saw him. They ran into him when he was jogging, maybe on the Upper West Side in, uh, or in Central Park. And they said he looked in good health. He was very, you know, just fine. Uh, just days before, he apparently went to Bologna. On July 2nd, a few days before his death, his friend Penelope Gilly, who was a frequent writer, she was like a literary critic uh, who worked for The New Yorker. She was a close associate of Graham Greene. Her family is English blue bloods, and her father was like gynecologist to the royal family. And then also, or maybe that was her grandfather. Her father was then like a physical therapist. And he specifically maybe was the guy who was treating the husband of the queen's sister for his uh, neurological condition where he couldn't walk. Uh, he walked with a limp and he was the head of all kinds of medical associations and so on. There's a funny, I read his obituary and he was, he was some kind of military man originally and his all of his students remember him approaching every surgery let's think it's it's as if we have to go take a village how does that work like we're about to heal a person's body for them let's think about it in terms of taking a village jesus christ so these are the kinds of high society cocktail party circles that 
Ivan Morris rolls in. You know, you can imagine, I think, the kind of madman, the madman set very much, right? So Penelope Gilly writes in a letter addressed to his home on Riverside Drive, Dearest Ivan, for God's sake, don't jump into a grave or go anywhere else without first telling me. So what does that sound like? There's no, you know, Bra doesn't elaborate on that, but I will just unpack that very logically. It sounds like he was talking about going somewhere, and Penelope Gilly is telling him, if you go to this place, you will die. He, in fact, went to a place, he went to Bologna, and he died. What did Penelope Gilly know about all this? The extensive archive of Ivan Morris at Columbia University contains a large number of letters, often labeled gift from Annalita Marsili. In a letter to Nobuko Albury, Ivan's third wife, Annalita wrote much later about, quote, the cruelty she was subjected to afterwards. She probably means by Adita. Even in the 1990s, she missed Ivan every single day, she continued. Adita had bequeathed the furnishings at Nail to the Gidlins, her publishers, but Annalita had bought the castle for bravely, uh, she means bought out Edita's share, quote, to save on paper and to capture a past that did not become mine. Annalita claims because of her love for Edita's son, she sent everything, including Ira's and Edita's left-behind papers, to Columbia University, where Ivan had been a professor. She emphasized that she paid with her own money. However, there are several gaps in these two extensive collections, the Ira and Edita Morris archive and the Ivan Morris archive. As for Ivan's relationship with Annalita, it is striking that there is not a single letter between Ivan and Annalita. There are also no letters from Ivan to Edita that deal with Annalita. One can suspect that the donor herself has simply taken out the things that she did not consider appropriate before handing it all over to Columbia. And I would add, too, that may not have been her individual decision. And all the more interesting because her, the novel that she wrote about Ivan is all about his ghost coming back into the world at the behest of a, a kind of like a fortune teller woman named Madame Kamiska, who is an associate of Kronos or Saturn Time, Father Time, or the, the Titan, the ancient Greek Titan, that's the group of supernatural entities who were around before the Greek gods, you'll recall. And Kronos as Father Time is, is the aspect of that god that she stresses, but the ghost is given the opportunity to return to Earth in a different guise, but if his loved ones recognize him, then his time on Earth will be over. It's like a little game that he gets put into. So he gets to come back after his death. His death is described, interestingly, like the morning he's waking up and he has to catch a flight. And it's, it's kind of fun. It's nice writing for a little while there, where, the beginning where you wake up, it's like dreams that you have, stress dreams about maybe being late for a flight. And you know that you're going to be late, but you're, in a, you're caught in a dream and you can't 
leave for different reasons and the clock is moving funny and you know you're going to be late if you don't go, but you somehow can't go. And then he gets to the airport and he sort of says goodbye to his wife and also his cousin is an important character there and who he always felt a little strange about. And he heard his wife talking in a strange way, saying some strange things on the phone to this cousin, who's a male uh, man. But anyway, Ivan goes, parts with them, and, and he goes and is going up an escalator. I think I guess escalators might have been kind of new uh, at that time, although the, this novel is written in the 90s. But at any rate, he's on the escalator, and then there's a crossfire of terrorists. A crossfire of terrorists. You know, this would have been... So the Lode Airport massacre, so-called, uh, happened in 1972. That was Shigenobu Fusako, at least, had foreknowledge of this. Um, the Japan Red Army, they were aiming at, they were targeting some Mossad targets. And it seems, you know, the official account is that all of the people who died in the airport were killed by the terrorists. They were just massacring civilians. But it also seems clear that at least some of that was fire from the return fire from the security forces. And in fact, those security forces, as we saw with Al-Aqsa flood, operate, they activate the Hannibal Doctrine, right? It's, it's actually been confirmed now that the Israeli offense force uh, activated the Hannibal Doctrine on October 7th of last year. And this doctrine means that they deliberately, in a case where liberation forces are attacking, they will deliberately just kill all the civilians in the area so that they can, you know, not have hostages taken, where they'd rather have hostages die on the spot. And also, you know, it's often unspoken, but of course, then they can blame all those civilian casualties on the liberation forces. And so they've now admitted that the Israeli army is responsible for over half of the casualties on October 7th. So if that's true of Al-Aqsa flood, what is the case with the Lode airport uh, massacre? I wonder. You know, in another way, in the mouth of Analita, depending on how knowledgeable you think she is, this could be a very noited thing to say, to say an exchange of fire between different groups of terrorists. That means that the security forces themselves are identified as a group of terrorists, which of course you and I know is quite accurate. Uh, the security forces are composed of people who are kept in a state of, uh, I mean, they're kept in a kind of feral state, somewhat like Robin Farquharson. They drop out they live off the grid and so on, right? And it's people inhabiting that, that barbarian space that actually become security forces and elite troopers. Uh, but that happened in 72. So, you know, Ivan dies in 76. That would have been kind of on someone's mind that was thinking back, I suppose. Um, there are a lot of JRA uh, hijackings and things that continue throughout the 70s. There's lots and lots of this. Right, demanding release of JRA members who are imprisoned by the Japanese state or by the Israeli state, because they are, you know, Shigenobu Fusako put them kind of at the service of the PFLP, you'll recall. 
um, although they remained a, a separate organization from the PFLP. That's the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine. So the ghost of Ivan, you know, he gets to come back and the first place he goes is his family's beloved castle in France, in the countryside. And there his wife and her cousin have taken possession of the place and they're going through all the things and, you know, a bunch of other stuff happens that's not that important. Uh, there's a huge subplot, though, for the main character around the Ivan character's archive, all of his papers. In this book, he is changed from a Japanologist into a scholar of Julius Caesar, which is very interesting. And, and I think appropriate somehow, you know, I think Ivan Morris, like maybe multiple Japanologists of that generation, really was like a classics nerd to begin with and, and really believed in the superiority of the Western canon and Western culture and nothing that they saw in the occupation of Japan disabused them of that notion. It really confirmed for them. And they had, he definitely had a kind of contempt for Japan and Japanese culture that shines through at various times in even the nobility of failure, which is his last major work. And you can say the same for things earlier than that. Uh, so, yes, Julius Caesar. I wonder if there's some alchemical symbolism in this. I'm reading about the Sola Busca Tarocchi at, at the moment. But so his archive is like missing and there's these dreamlike sequences where he's chasing papers, pages of his archive that are... There, some thieves come to the castle right after. There's a burglary at the castle, and they stole. One of the only things they stole was the cabinet that had his archive, his papers in it. And he's, like, looking where the... And nobody can find any clues. The police can't find any clues. They keep asking... There's another scene where they keep asking the one policeman who was assigned to solve the murder of Ivan and... He's been working on it and working on it and thinking about it. There's this weird way. I mean, it's part of the dreamlike style, but it feels taunting in a way. Also haunting. It's both taunting and haunting. Yeah, it's wild. Um, the You know, you can tell she doesn't know him as well as like Nobuko did. Nobuko produces like pretty convincing like characterizations of him that, that fit with... Uh, what I know, uh, Analitas has him saying some very unnoited things that I think he wouldn't ever say. He's just very innocent of all kinds of things. Like, uh, are there pirates around today? Is there such things as pirates? Uh, when, you know, Nobuko has him saying all kinds of things, like he knows all about the drug trade. He knows all about uh, hippies are actually involved in database projects and things. Although Analita herself knows all kinds of things, right? Like she, she knows like holograms of people who do not exist, that there would be such a project as that. Uh, reminds me of this, the theory on John Benet Ramsey by the one really, really noited account, the one account that is a no planes on 9-11 guy because uh, it was holograms, right? And John Bonet actually is a person who never existed, and that was a test of technology to create AI-generated people uh, way back then. That's what the inside, people on the inside have that level of technology, even back then. 
Uh, Analita, Analita mentions that Ivan visited Victoria Falls in Africa. So that would be, you know, again, South Africa. These South African connections keep coming up. This Ivan in the story, though, he dies in 1984 rather than 1976 for some reason. She also mentions secret tunnels at Nail, at the castle of the Morris family. Is this real? If there really are secret tunnels there, could this be part of why the Marsilies seized the property? Right? Um, it, it's funny, you know, officially the Mor- Ivan Morris character is a Julius Caesar scholar. But in the story, you know, she mentions there's this moment where she's like the narrator is mentioning the great books of the great books and ideas of the ages. And in that list, she has like Ivan Morris on Murasaki Shikibu. She's like name checking Ivan Morris's Japanology works as like some of the greatest ideas that have ever been written. You wonder if this is some kind of conciliatory gesture toward Ivan's family. Is she defending herself? Is she somehow trying to make an argument here? Uh, If so, it's very strange, though, because the major plot that happens is that the character quickly finds that his wife has almost immediately married his cousin with whom she had been having an affair, actually. And that cousin is taking over all of Ivan's property, and he also has been meticulously rewriting Ivan's papers and his archive and replacing each document with a counterfeit version of that document that Ivan could never possibly have written. He looks at each page and he says, this looks like something I might have written, but I know that I would never write this. This is, at the same time, just completely alien to my my thinking. The wife character uh, suddenly randomly remembers poetry lines about the occult from her childhood. Apparently she belongs to the class that uh, learns lines of occult poetry as part of your childhood. There's a profound kind of intelligence lingo throughout this. He speaks of Madame Kamiska, the fortune teller lady who is kind of the psychopomp you know, the, the psychopomp is the, the spirit guide who leads a spirit on a journey through some kind of spirit world, right? Like, like Virgil leads Dante through hell and purgatory and heaven in the Divine Comedy, right? So, but Madame Kamiska is, is that one. And she has moles on earth. You know, he meets a character and he realizes this, this character is Madame Kamiska's mole, When he comes back, he's given a computer disk, which contains a script for every, supposedly it contains a script for everything that he's uh, about to do. And everything that he's about to do is going to just be a repetition of exactly what's on the script. And he won't be able to do anything free. He won't be able to actually exercise any agency. And that's the kind of nightmare quality of this thing, you know. But he decides that it's his mission to subvert the plot of Kronos against him and to actually do something spontaneous and free. And the book actually says that he's successful in the end at sort of um, connecting with his wife, basically. At the end, he does reveal himself to his wife 
and he gets to achieve some kind of closure or healing or something in this way. And here I think this novel is very directly referencing the conventions of the typical no play where a traveling monk meets the spirit of a troubled you know, troubled soul from history or literature. It can be a fictional character too, but the ghost is somebody, appears to be someone normal, appears to just be someone in the world, but then as the monk questions the person, they seem to know an awful lot about the historical details here, and they talk about it almost as if they experienced it personally. And then gradually they are coaxed into revealing their identity, and then they have to vanish. And that's exactly the rules that Madame Kamiska gives the Ivan character's ghost, is that as soon as he reveals who he is, and also, by the way, everyone is prevented from recognizing him somehow, like Jesus on the road to Emmaus. But as soon as he reveals who he is, he will have to disappear. Um, he doesn't disappear right away, though. He gets time to sort of have a nice little closure with his uh, former wife, who nevertheless has married the cousin. And there's this, you know, the quick takeover and and he's editing his legacy. This is really editing the archive. Why would you write this about yourself and your almost husband who died under such mysterious uh, circumstances? Uh, it's wild to know that Annalita knew the purpose of computers and the internet uh, even back in the, the 90s. You know, the dot-com boom maybe hasn't even happened yet, but she kind of knows that computers are going to be used to record everything that happens in the world. And she connects it to the cosmic scribal functions of Kronos and Madame Kamiska. Uh, because that's the way that this disc has actually the whole, all the events in the world that are going to happen from the moment that he, and he's given the disc before he enters the world again and starts acting in it again. And that's the kind of joke on him. Can you make something happen that wasn't in the script? And so on. But so the passage where Annalita seems most clearly to be protesting her innocence in what happened to Ivan is uh, about page 272. The wife character here, uh, the Annalita character, I'm just going to replace names. Um, so basically the cousin is, um, turns out that he is is communicating with the fortune teller lady and he's in on this plot somehow and you know so he and he had kind of maybe plotted there's there's i mean it does say that the cousin sort of plotted the death of the ivan character together with chronos you know it, it says it kind of says that but but you can't be sure how seriously are you supposed to take it is it just his hallucination his delusion Regardless, Annalita didn't know anything about it, and the Ivan character is discovering this. He says, uh, so he breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that, you know, Annalita character had been a stranger to all the intrigues against him, you know, suggesting quite clearly that his death was not an accident. Her only weakness was that of a person who trusted the world too much. He felt sorry for her and also wanted to protect her. And in this scene, they're actually on their way to visit the ashes, the urns of uh, the Ivan character and his family. Uh, they're in America. They're somewhere in upstate New York. 
And indeed, in reality, uh, at Nail, there was a tree under which supposedly the urns of uh, the family were buried. But the local town, when they came, they got into the idea to create a kind of memorial for the Morrises and create a nicer grave for them. They went to dig up those urns and they couldn't find anything. And there were rumors that Annalita might have taken the urns as well. And indeed, in this novel, also the Annalita character explicitly had... And this is something that Monica Bra kind of misses. I think maybe she zoned out. She might have noped out of that that novel, didn't read the whole thing. Kind of don't blame... But in that novel, the that character has taken the urns and has put them in upstate New York somewhere. And the Ivan Ghost character goes with her to visit the urns. And, you know, this is very no play. This is a very Japanese thing, right? And so I think she's doing that on purpose, for sure. And then the climax of the novel, in a way, at the end, they reenact the assassination of the Ivan character. Uh, recall, it's not known that he was shot in an airport or anything like that uh, in reality, right? He just turns up in this Bologna hotel, uh, a cheap hotel, perhaps it is known. And he's already dead. He's been dead for two weeks, in fact. So the cause of death by that point already was quite murky. But there's a reenactment of, of his death in the airport. This time, I mean, it's really convoluted. There's like other characters that... Uh, but he's we know that he's he knows that oh i know it's going to be a reenactment of my my assassination and i get to go through it again except this time i know it's going to happen uh and it's not going to be terrorists this time uh and the list that is given here is interesting no more libyans this time no more palestinians red army factions ira terrorists revolutionaries from all countries it's a good rewrite. Isn't it a good rewrite, he says? And he also um, has his... He remembers that the one detective who's always been puzzling over his death, and that detective will be really happy with this rewrite. Now it's going to be easy to solve. It'll be an easy crime to solve. And he's going through the thing. And we, we get the... You get the sense that, like... I don't know how to say this, but it, there's quite a consciousness of the details involved in planning an assassination you know like this oh he's gonna walk here he's gonna go here there's gonna be this person there staked out doing that and then this happens and this happens and and it's all planned out in advance it's it's kind of wild to to come along on this journey here i mean it occurred to me that maybe this is typical for an italian person who grew up lived during the years of lead, but uh, still, that's that's a lot of um, familiarity with the ins and outs of setting up an assassination, uh, and it's it's um, throughout likened to putting on a play. Uh, there's a lot about plays. There's a lot about theater in the whole thing as well. The main character is also an actor. The main character also has to play Julius Caesar in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And that's a big plot point as well. He actually like refuses to say the final line, then fall Caesar, uh, and so he doesn't die in the play. And he tried. That's like his first attempt to escape Kronos's trap and make something unexpected actually happen 
it's kind of it's interesting moment in this novel. But then, uh, so the novel ends with this kind of cosmic journey, you know, kind of 2001, a space odyssey chapter. It's called The Final Vision. And Ivan's soul is kind of ascending into oblivion, sort of, or oneness with the universe as a whole. They go through kind of big uh, zoom out kind of through the cosmos uh, we have an introduction of the alien seed theory of the origin of life on Earth. This classic, you know, quasars and black holes, birth of the universe, human history. He was able to see Tarquin, prince of the early mon monarchical Rome. Now, you may recall that this name Tarkon was the name of the rabbit of the Josephine character. Um, so Josephine Speyer is the probably the real name. Author, by the way, of The Natural Death Handbook. That was what uh, Josephine and Nick Albury got up to in their later years. Among other things, they started clubs for taking walks in the countryside. They start, And that's another thing. Nick Albury actually had a spinal condition where his spine was kind of fusing together and growing irregularly. So one wonders just how hunky he could have really been. And that, in turn, makes you wonder if some of those details that Nobuko shares about just how hunky this character was makes you lean toward actually did a lot of this stuff actually happen with Mishima instead. And she's covering over things that happened with Mishima with this big veneer of Nick Albury, in fact just a by the way there. Um, yeah, so Nick Albury and his wife Josephine, one of their final projects was natural, the natural death movement, which, gee, if he was uh, really the ruling class operative that he kind of appears to be, seeding uh, kind of libertarian, uh, right, ultimately monarchist, uh, hippie culture among uh, the youth who were having budding revolutionary consciousness, well then, uh, isn't it fitting that the final thing that he was advising us all to do was just curl up and die, find good ways to die, and so on, right? really connects to the kind of extinction narrative type thing. But so Josephine is called Juliet in the Nobuko novel, right? The kind of uh, Margot Tenenbaum character who's a maladjusted rich girl who marries the Nick Albury character, ultimately. She had a rabbit, and the rabbit that the Nick Albury character was mysteriously able to smuggle across national borders without any problems was called Tarkon as well, or Tarquin however you want to say it, Tarquinius, uh, which is the mythical first king of Rome. I think he's a mythical first king of Britain also in Arthurian legend. So uh, whatever that means. But so here's this mysterious uh, novel that is left behind, giving this kind of suggestion, things between the lines. And, the you know, the book itself is always telling you, you have to read between the lines. You have to the, the way that he's able to read the text on the floppy disk that Kronos uh, gives him is by putting it into a Macintosh SE that's in a stone hut 
on the wild moors where he finds himself, some kind of interdimensional space, which also does exist in the French countryside outside his family's chateau. And it has a telephone that connects to Madame Comiska as well, but it has a Macintosh SE. And so he puts the disc in there and it's all sort of encrypted text and it doesn't make any sense, but he remembers that most reading, it must be done between the lines and the truth flows like a hidden river underneath the text. And so he chooses the command show hidden text. And when he shows the hidden text, it is the script of everything that will happen in the universe. Uh, and, th and then he's able to sort of plan his uh, escape. And so his escape is sort of accomplished, but sort of not, right? I don't know. It's a classic, classic point about man is free, kind of. So what does this say about the, <laughs> the life and death of Ivan Morris? My goodness. Um, somehow, apparently, it really is a relative of Analita who owns the castle even today. This tidbit about tunnels is very interesting, although it is nothing but a tidbit, like most things in this novel. All of the things that I've highlighted for you, I would read longer passages from the novel, but it really is just these little hints. It's really just the words that I've given you. Uh, embedded with, within this larger narrative, very dreamlike and surreal. But one of those is the tidbit about there being tunnels under the chateau. If that, that I don't know what to do with that, but uh, as Klani Gosh has proclaimed, it is now the year of the tunnel, 2024. And it may be the energy of Saturn or Kronos, uh, I bring it out, bring coming out here, and I think that that energy of the tunnel is a double-edged sword. Certainly, the ruling class makes plenty of use of tunnels for their nefarious purposes. But uh, as our boys in Gaza have been showing day after day, the working class and the colonized people of the world can definitely use those tunnels to fight back. So count me among the Marxist-Leninist tunnelers. The diggers, right, in the true sense of the word. But so, you know, the surreal scene where the cousin character is like, I have been secretly rewriting all of your papers and all of your archive into plausible copies, plausible but falsified copies of everything that you produced. And uh, it's, why would you write this book? Oh, my God. Okay, so... Many more questions than answers here at the end of uh, the Weebs of the Ages, Ivan Morris series. What can I say except that he was truly a weeb for the ages? One of the first post-war Anglo-American Japanologists in a way, uh, you know, at a time when in a way the field was really born for the first time in a serious way. And a lot of Japanologists were actively cultivated, you know. He was at a time when still the connections to military intelligence and things were in full view. And a Japanologist would be expected to just publish papers and whole books 
about like this is how we should rule this country that I also study the classical literature of, right? And that's not something that you see as much today. Maybe, I don't know. Looking at the New Books Network of Podcasts, where you get, which I highly recommend, as always, you get to hear author interviews with the authors of scholarly books. But of course, you get plenty, plenty of very spooky sounding books on there, people that are very obviously defense uh, intelligence connected people, and they're writing about places like China and Russia in extremely tendentious ways. You know, it's just anti BRICS propaganda. But Notice it's not the same guy. In Ivan Morris's day, it's the same guy that's giving you like the regime position on this country and also knows all about the classical tradition, right? Like and and by that token, all literary scholarship is completely emptied of political meaning. Notice. Or it's postmodernist. It's postmodernist and it denies meaning altogether to the literary. But back then, for a minute there, it was the same guy. And that guy was Ivan Morris. You can look forward to future series when we return to this. Uh, we'll get into people like Ezra Pound, people like Lafcadio Hearn. We got to hit them up because they are very fascinating people in the history of class struggle and of parapolitics, for sure, and, and of uh, Japan studies which is surely uh, part of our wheelhouse here in the Kingless Generation. So I think I'm going to take a break from this for a while, though. Uh, we're we're going to head into to some very different territory for next time. So look forward to uh, catching you then. Meanwhile, stay well, stay warm if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Stay cool if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Cette année-là, je chantais pour la première fois. Le public ne me connaissait pas. Oh, quelle année cette année-là. Cette année-là. Le rock and roll venait d'ouvrir ses ailes. Et dans mon coin, je chantais belle, belle, belle. Et le public aimait ça. Déjà, les Beatles étaient quatre garçons dans le vent. Et moi. Ma chanson disait marcher tout droit. Oh, cette année-là, les guitares tiraient sur les violons. On croyait qu'une révolution arrivait cette année-là. C'était le nez. Soixante-deux, c'était le nez. Soixante-deux.